Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. We're in for a very exciting and educational interview today, so stay tuned. But first, some news and notes, and actually an editorial. Imagine a world in which if you ingest a vegetable or a laboratory-made substance in the privacy of your home, you can be arrested and then sent to prison. Imagine a world in which if you are a highly educated and trained scientist, you can lose your job and be sent to prison if you scientifically investigate certain substances. Imagine a world where millions of people are incarcerated for possession of a vegetable or smoking a weed. Imagine a world in which the government is allowed to dictate what its citizens can ingest. This is the world I live in. Imagine a world where authorities are allowed to break down the door of a citizen's home and search for vegetables and organic compounds. These people are allowed to point rifles and pistols at citizens and place metal shackles around their wrists and take them out of their homes by force for possession of vegetables and organic substances. Imagine a world where the sale of vegetables and organic compounds have spawned criminal empires large enough to threaten and control entire countries, creating narcotocracies possibly more powerful than even the church. Imagine a world in which a Trumpian figure unites the dictators and tyrants of the world and forms a planetary cartel led by one supreme cartel leader, with no Congress and no Supreme Court, virtually a king. Imagine a world in which a criminal gang and its leaders can threaten the lives of national presidents and their entire families and can bring the threats to fruition. Imagine a world in which the only rules for the leaders are kill or be killed. By making certain vegetables and compounds of organic nature illegal, this is the evil empire we have created and the world in which we all now live. An excellent defense against this planetary cartel takeover is for us to stop using their products. What if the United States and its allies were to go on a voluntary reduction program with many people actually abstaining. We could bleed the cartels dried and they would have to find other ways of making a living. Abstinence or even a 50 or 75% drop in consumption may sound impossible, but consider that the alternative is going back to the days when we were subjects and not citizens. Our cause of decreasing consumption of cartel products can be supported by DIY, do-it-yourself in the old American way. In the case of that evil weed marijuana, those who wish to continue to use it can simply grow their own. And the same is true for psychedelic mushrooms. With regard to the psychedelics MDMA and LSD, we might call on the U.S. government to produce American-made products, and they can distribute these products legally through pharmacies in the same way the United States government delivered the COVID vaccines. What say you gentle listeners? What say you? Shall we pull a Gandhi on the drug cartels and voluntarily cut consumption of narco products? Well, now on to our interview for the day. Our guest today is Dr. Erica Dick, a full professor of history at the University of Saskatchewan. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Erica. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. Prior to the program, you told me that you've been doing psychedelic research for 20 years. You're a historian. You're the second historian that I've had on this program 
in the past 20 years. Most of the people I have on are scientists, doctors, researchers, and some authors who write about various topics because we cover a wide variety of topics. But I have given extreme attention to psychedelics, uh, so much so that I've got several books coming out on psychedelics that came out of the interviews. I'm particularly interested in your book, Psychedelic Psychiatry, because of the fact that you're a historian. How did a historian come some 20 years ago to get involved in historical research on psychedelics? You know, Richard, it's a story that uh, sometimes surprises people. It doesn't come from my extensive use of psychedelics or my own personal voyages through this territory, but it really comes at the intersection of an interest that I had in medical experimentation and politics. I was curious about how psychiatry came through some transformations at mid-century in the Cold War period and different searches for treatments, maybe mind control, maybe ideas about consciousness that are all kind of intersecting in this moment. And what I, what I found was there was an anchoring point for me, at least, in the Canadian study, and that was in the province of Saskatchewan, which in 1944 elected the first socialist government in North America. And so here was this incredible case where you have socialists or socialist-minded, we would say, uh, politicians and researchers coming together in a kind of an ideological magnet that dovetailed with medical experimentation in this place, which I now know led to the coining of the word psychedelic. And so I was sort of enchanted by, you know, these intersections that led me to a place where politics and science intersected in these exciting ways. That is very interesting. And it really ties in with my interest in psychedelics, because I'm, as a clinical psychologist, was naturally interested when these things were coming to my attention in the 1960s in graduate school, and then later on when I was teaching at Michigan at Stanford, but also because there's a constitutional aspect to this. Namely, I believe that every person has a constitutional right to ingest whatever they want in the privacy of their own home, so long as they don't influence other people. In other words, they're doing it on a very personal level. But as you well know, and you're going to tell us in your history, that constitutional right was taken away from us. And the reason it was taken away from us is part of what you have discovered and you've laid out in your history book. So please take us on a journey. How did something that began as a medicine, an object of science, go from being a medicine and an object of science to something that might be considered a medicinal pariah mm. to such an extent that it got illegalized over 50 years ago and scientific research in the United States and around the world came to a grinding halt. Yeah, I, I might even back the question up just a little bit in that, uh, you know, I think we've you know, amidst the psychedelic renaissance, there are all sorts of stories and information coming to the surface now about an even longer history of psychedelics or hallucinogens or entheogens and different words that have come to capture this fascination with consciousness that is sometimes peaked or triggered or challenged, changed by uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness, sometimes with plants, sometimes with chemicals, sometimes they're one and the same. And even before we really saw psychedelics as a medicine, I think there were a variety of people. We see a long history of indigenous uses, but we also see like philosophers and artists and other bohemian characters who are drawn to these experiences, if not the substances themselves. And it kind of gets, I think what's kind of exciting, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, where this intersects with psychiatry at mid 20th century I think comes at a time when psychiatry is really searching for different paths forward. You know, there's a kind of an exhaustion with Freudian psychoanalysis and treating the worried well, if you will. And there's also a kind of frustration with bodily therapies, these like physical therapies and interventions, ECT or electroshock therapy, lobotomies, insulin shock therapy, all sorts of features that are borrowed from other aspects of medicine to try to deal with trauma and mental distress and mental suffering. It's an interesting moment, I think, because 1952 is the introduction of the first DSM or Diagnostics and Statistics Manuals. We have this 
new classification system. We have the first antipsychotic medications available in the United States in 1954, a couple of years earlier in Europe and Canada goes in between. And uh, we have new um, psychopharmacological drugs coming in such that we later describe this as a psychopharmacological revolution. And psychopharmacologists have argued, and maybe you've had some of them on your program, that the 1950s were such a dramatic period for introducing this revolutionary way of thinking about psychiatry and mental illness, that it changes both treatment and research. And what I found remarkable is that psychedelics in some ways was kind of swept up in that moment, searching for different ways, different ways of understanding distress and trauma and psychosis, different ways of testing and experimenting with psychoactive substances. And you know, by 1961, there were a thousand published, published articles which used psychedelics and no one got necessarily too alarmed. I mean, people were excited about the research, but this wasn't the moment when psychedelics came grinding to a halt. So what struck me is, you know, okay, so what happened here? How could psychedelics be part of this paradigm shift, if you will, and yet they kind of get siphoned out and put into another category? And I think it is a collusion of interests, some of which are political and financial. Daily use pharmaceuticals are much more appealing to a pharmaceutical industry than a single dose or sometimes irregular dose or not often dose of a psychedelic. And I think psychedelics also came to challenge an intellectual way of understanding the way we measure, test, and evaluate psychedelic, or sorry, psychiatric illnesses. They don't perform well in randomized controlled trials, although that's perhaps the topic we want to talk about a little more. And I think that some of the people taking psychedelics started to challenge psychiatry and established ways of thinking in ways that made others nervous. And then here I am sitting in California. Um, there was this other aspect where people were taking psychedelics outside of a clinic, outside of a medical context or outside of prescribed uses. And I think that really challenged ideas about cognitive freedom and some of the comments that you made earlier about this idea that one can or should or shouldn't ingest psychoactive substances outside of a medical context. Well, I'll stop there for now. <laughs> well, I did mention uh, earlier, I think maybe we were off the air, that I believe that it's every person's constitutional right to be able to ingest anything they care to ingest in the privacy of their own home, as long as they don't give it to a person underage or a person who is unwilling. We're allowed to do with our bodies what we want. And I believe that's a constitutional right that's been taken away from us. But in terms of what you're saying about this uh, uh, confluence of events, there is a issue that's been going on in my profession for mm -hmm. decades, which is referred to sometimes as the nature-nurture controversy. And mm -hmm. when you apply that to mental illness, it becomes, did we inherit these things and therefore we need medicinal ways of dealing with these problems? Or are we creating these things culturally and therefore we need verbal ways of retraining and learning? And these two opposing forces have been opposing each other for many years. Mm -hmm. And it appears that the pharmacological approach has been winning in part because the verbal approach to psycho, what we call psychotherapy is extremely difficult to quantify. How do you measure the effect of words? How do you affect, measure the effect of the therapist persona, what they bring to the table? How do you measure the effect of what you might call electromagnetic biochemical waves that are sent between the two people. The measurement is, is virtually impossible, which is sort of similar in a way to the problems with LSD research, because it, some of the LSD research, as you're going to tell us, has been faulted because they don't use double blinds. But to me as a scientist, that is a ridiculous argument because you give somebody a placebo and you give somebody LSD, the two groups know ex within minutes of what they've each taken because you cannot give a medicine such as LSD to subjects without telling them what they're taking, although you're going to tell us about how the government did that. But you're not supposed to do that. So since the subjects in both the control and the experimental group both know they're getting LSD, 
They know within minutes whether there's dramatic changes going on or whether there aren't. So that's the end of the double-blind study right there. So they use that argument against the LSD research that Humphrey and Osmond did is really is, is, is ridiculous, in my opinion. But coming back, so we've got nature nurture. We've got the argument of is it physiological or psychological. We've got the pharmaceutical companies wanting to sell drugs. So they're going to come down on the side of it's something genetic that you inherited that we can give you a drug to take care of. And they have basically conquered the world until this renaissance that you're talking about in psychedelics comes into effect. And then you hear from Johns Hopkins University, hey, this guy, Dr. Roland Griffiths, did this research and people recovered from depression after one administration of something that the pharmaceutical companies want you to take every day for 365 days. So is it any wonder they're threatened? I completely, right? I completely agree. And I, I think that one of the themes that kind of emerges from all of these different features is the role of experience in medical experimentation and in how we do diagnoses. So if in randomized controlled trials, one of the ideas is that you, you know, move the observer further and further away from the observed. Um, in psychedelic research, in psychoanalytic research, and in some of the research that predates the move to pharmacological research and focus, the physician or um, researcher, the scientist is experiencing these things alongside. In psychoanalysis, one has to go through psychoanalysis before they can practice psychoanalysis. Psychedelic research initially was very much premised on that idea, that one had to experience, have a psychedelic experience in order to work with these substances. And this is another kind of methodological collision, I think, that takes place in the 1950s, beginning in the 1950s, and really accelerating through the 1960s, that changes the way we understand and experience these non-altered states of consciousness. Um, and again, that can come through a variety of different forms, some through meditation. If you follow Stan Groff, uh, you can get it through holotropic breathwork, yoga. There's a variety of ways, but this, this sort of anchoring here in uh, pharmacological research put psychedelics into this awkward space in this moment in time, I think. I believe that these questions are not resolved, but they are part of the psychedelic renaissance. And it remains to be seen, I have some opinions, but, <laughs> but they're just that, about where this collision or where these tracks might come together again going forward. Right now, in the FDA and various different jurisdictions around the world who have similar drug administrations do not allow therapists to take psychedelics as part of their experimentation or treatment plans. And yet I think those question, those, that notion is being questioned. So should we have experiences? Should we have empathy? And this changes, I think, that dynamic. It also brings into sharper relief some of those talk therapies and maybe different mechanisms for evaluating them. And you've probably heard this, but psychedelic researchers throughout the 1950s and early 60s argued that one LSD session, they didn't believe in microdosing, by the way, uh, one substantial dose of LSD combined with psychotherapy was the equivalent of 10 years of psychotherapy. That's a pretty exciting economical pros economic prospect if you are a socialist government reforming healthcare systems, as was the case in Canada at the time where some of this research took off. And I think that may also grab the attention of reformers through from drug policy through to healthcare reforms these days, as we see both insurance and publicly funded systems struggling to keep up with the rising pharmacological costs. It's an exciting prospect, I think, that has a different group of allies in the 21st century. I think there's a vast amount of research indicating that LSD, psilocybin, and MDMA have huge potential for healing. And this argument that any scientist who's taken these things shouldn't be doing the science because they're influenced is utterly ridiculous because the other side of that is any scientist who hasn't taken these things doesn't understand what it is that the subjects are going through. And so what are they coming to it with it, which is a sterile attitude. And one of the things that we know about psychedelics is the relationship between the guide and the person taking the material it influences the entire experience, as does the set and the setting. Mm -hmm. So it isn't simply a matter of taking something in, a, in an anechoid chamber 
all by yourself just to see purely what the medicine does. That is something that is done with certain medicines and properly so, perhaps antibiotics, which are perhaps the least affected by the psychology of the person. But what we know is the psychology of the person does affect almost everything that we eat and ingest. And therefore, the set, namely your attitude in taking these medicines, the setting where you take medicine, the difference between taking a psychedelic and having two jackhammers out in front of your apartment in Manhattan and taking it out in nature on a beach dramatically changes the effect of the medicine. These things have to be taken into account in a rational way without hysteria. But as I want you to tell us, there has been hysteria, which has led to very misguided misconceptions about these medicines. And I want you to please right now, take us back on some of how those misconceptions were formed historically. I think uh, in an effort to, I, I have a lot of ideas about this and I'm gonna just sort of focus on two different tracks. One is a scientific one and one is a social or cultural one. And I think both are framed in political ways as well. Along the scientific track, I think that the desire to create a universal scalable methodology, namely the RCT, but also this notion of bringing a greater degree of objectivity and the capacity to scale research to a diverse and larger set of populations really sort of push things away from that knowledge or experiential learning or experiential ideas. It moves away from some of the principles of psychotherapy, certainly those that are informed by Jungian theories or Freudian theories that allowed for experience to play a really prominent role. And as we move away from that, I think people who continue to engage in those practices were further and further marginalized from their practice. And we see that reflected in a, a challenges in getting referrals for clients, in getting grants to do research, in securing the institutes and the funding required to maintain institutes that were focused on those kinds of projects. And we see this reflected in the historical literature. But on the social side, I think as, um, I mean, Timothy Leary is a great sort of avatar for exploring this, and he's not alone. But this idea, as you've mentioned, of, you know, how can anyone, a government or any kind of authority, tell me what I can put in my body, and how I should maintain my own re reactions or experiences. This attitude or that sort of um, that that notion really challenged where psychedelics could go and who was to take them. And even those who are considered rather elite users, people like Aldous Huxley or even to a degree Humphrey Osmond, I might disagree that they're super elite, but even they were sort of questioning, you know, who should get to have access to these chemicals? Does this mean we should go and participate in Native American ceremonies? Um, and that raises a whole other set of issues about how we defer to the kind of sacred nature of some of these substances. Should we invest in synthesizing them, which we see happening at this time, primarily in Switzerland, uh, with a start with LSD in 1938, which is first experienced in 1943, later mescaline, or actually mescaline comes earlier and is rediscovered later, uh, psilocybin. We see some of these efforts to bring sacred plants into the context of psychedelic medicine in a way that doesn't necessarily interrupt indigenous uses. But I think that kind of the excitement there, the enthusiasm for doing that gets cut off with a moral panic that emerges beginning, I would argue, beginning in the late 19th, mid 1960s. But I think it's triggered a little bit by questioning about science. And it may be difficult for some listeners to remember or to imagine back, this happened before I was born, for example, but this nuclear threat existed. This faith in science also had demonstrated really dramatically dangerous and you know, catastrophic consequences. And we start to see pharmaceuticals moving into this space. And I think people's confidence is shaken as we see problems, thalidomide, for example. We have faith in the pharmaceutical industry to keep us safe and give us good medicines, but thalidomide causes teratogenic birth defects, shortened limbs and arms of you know, children with dramatic effects. And I think the imagery that is produced at that time and circulates around the world 
really shakes people's confidence in the capacity for whoever, scientific experts, and it may not be disarticulated really in the public consumption, to really understand that we can have faith in those experts, those regulators to protect us. And other substances start coming into the frame as people question. And I think it dovetails with questions about environmentalism, with nuclear fallout. And these things are on the radio. These things are in television. They're made into sort of dystopic imagery that are being consumed by a large and growing public at this time, well outside the United States. But I think that kind of creates this, this tension that then is galvanized into a generational tension. Again, I wouldn't say, I don't think Timothy Leary was under 30 when he um, became a self-appointed guru, but nonetheless, this notion that young people are not following the rules. They're making their own rules. They're dropping out and questioning established wisdom. And I think that created a real cultural anxiety that was amplified in a moment of Cold War anxiety that already existed about the, the place of the U.S. or the place of the West uh, versus the Soviet Union in particular. Erica, I'm saddened <laughs> by being in a culture that doesn't praise young people for questioning authority. I'm a patriotic American. My father was an army colonel. I grew up on an Air Force base. My dad did important work during World War II. I served in the uh, Reserve Officers Training Corps. I think of my country as a great country, but I acknowledge the great stains that this country has on its character, certainly how we've treated Native Americans, people of color, and women and now how we've treated psychedelic substances. It, 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 is, it is reprehensible to me that we take, the government is allowed to take a position against allowing people to ingest what they want, to put into their bodies that which they want. And now to make it even worse, our government has taken a, pick, a position against allowing people to take something out of their body that they don't want. Mm -hmm. So we are we are in a really very awkward position in human history. Getting back to the psychedelics. Yes, there's been a frenzy and it has been driven in part by the corruption of the pharmaceutical companies. Yes, I agree with your your example of thalidomide. But that's just one of many examples mm -hmm. of how these companies have allowed the quest for profit to drive the products that they give to the United States citizens. And that mm -hmm. is a really a, a, a reprehensible uh, situation. And we know that it's happening. We know that they drive through research that should be, uh, be done a great deal more. And at the same time, we know that they are pushing back against psychedelics because people can grow psychedelic mushrooms in their home and they don't need to pay anybody for them. And they can deal with depression by learning how to use a guide in the proper set and setting. They don't need a lot of accoutrements or a lot of money. I, you know, I think that there may be a kind of um, ironic boomerang effect, or maybe this is kind of sweet justice in a way, because as the psychedelic Renaissance picks that momentum and as you know, FDA and approval boards around, again, different jurisdictions, recognize the power of these medicines to meet needs. There's a cost efficiency here, there's quality, there's, there's sort of a, an evaluation that's showing that there's real promise in these psychoactive substances. And where do they go to get the information about this? Yes, we can go to Johns Hopkins and Roland Griffiths is doing a wonderful study and there are a variety of other people who are, we might say above ground researchers, but there's a whole underground that has been protecting this information, coveting this knowledge, continuing to practice under very risky conditions for all the reasons you've mentioned that this constitutional right has been taken away. I think there's a real opportunity here to see not just a renaissance, but a bit of a reconciliation or a revitalization of practices that have been driven underground, but have then been protected in some respects by very astute people working carefully and quietly, thinking about doses, thinking about guiding, thinking about harm reduction in a, in a way. I think there's an interesting opportunity to bring that back into the conversation. And perhaps this might be my Pollyanna approach, but I think there's an opportunity to maybe think about reconciling some of those divisions that have been created in our society by cleaving off um, psychedelics from a legal market or from an illegal cultural practice. 
it may even open up opportunities for us to think deeply and thoughtfully about the relationship with Indigenous practices, about ceremonial uses and protected, um, coveted ceremonies. I think this is actually kind of a really exciting and hopeful opportunity that could bring forth something really quite quite harmonious. And I think right now we desperately need that. Um, of course, I'm not that naive. I think there's lots of evidence on the horizon to suggest that we may not be going in that direction. But for me, I was always drawn to psychedelics for the intellectual potential that they represent. Who was drawn to them? Why? Under what circumstances? And how do they allow us to think differently about established patterns or structures, infrastructure? And I think that exists again today in a moment as we I think are coming out of a pandemic, though I think um, Fauci says that we are now living in a pandemic age. As we live with these different kinds of existential anxieties, climate change pandemics to be two quick examples. I think we need psychedelics more than ever. You as a historian have taken note of the fact that throughout history, intellectual people, artistic people, authors, writers, painters, and scientists have experimented with psychedelic substances going back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so that drew your interest. It drew your interest. You're asking why do these, uh, these particular groups so interested? We know, for example, that in the 19th century, there was a hashish eaters club and I think you've written about that in, in, uh, in one of your books where they uh, uh, great writers and painters got together. Why were they doing this? What is the interest? Those are important questions, aren't they? I think so. I, I mean, I was drawn to the work of Aldous Huxley and, and Humphrey Osmond. And so through them, I sort of explored some of the people that they held up as inspiring leaders or inspiring thinkers. And they're not all maybe what we might think of as celebrated authors. Jean-Paul Sartre, who had his own masculine experiences, for example. Simone de Beauvoir was his guide and carefully took care of him while he had what sounded like a bit of a frightening trip. He thought he turned into a crab. Um, but we have, you know, sort of famous named authors, but we also have a whole host of other other people who may be less known to us or less household names. We didn't have to read them in school, but they nonetheless participated in thinking creatively and testing the boundaries of knowledge and consciousness and have really deeply contributed to our, our sort of growing understanding of the role that psychedelics might play in both intellectual development, but also these sort of cultural developments. And I, again, I go back to Huxley because I spent a bit of time. We published a book of his letters um, between he and, and Humphrey Osmond as they sort of rolled up their sleeves and thought through, what does it mean to take psychedelics? Um, they, of course, coined the word psychedelic. So it's, it's through them that I explored this. And Huxley said something along the lines of, you know, somebody asked him who should take them. And he said, well, anyone who thinks they know what's what. And it's <laughs> just a simple phrase, but I think it's really telling of like an interruption of rutted thinking. And I think that you know, thinking with psychedelics can be really powerful in that way. But what happened to this country, as you well know, is that even though such great people as Aldous Huxley uh, took psychedelics and wrote about it in, in the doors of perception, mm -hmm. there came a time in America where what you describe as a moral panic set in. When I read those words, moral panic in your book, the first thing I thought about is George Washington who was afraid to dance in public because he feared that he would lose votes or lose public esteem because dancing was so frowned upon by a certain segment of our Puritan population. Mm. Is, aren't we dealing with the same mentality? I, I think so. I think there's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to some of the psychedelic heyday. And, you know, I'm I'm sitting here in Oakland today and I plan to go to San Francisco tomorrow and continue exploring this. There are still remnants or scars or, you know, legacy pieces, if you will, of, you know, the kind of epicenter of what happens when psychedelics run amok, or at least that's what the news reels would have us believe from, say, 1967 or 1969, the Summer of Love, and then 1971 when the UN weighs in on this after following in Richard Nixon's footsteps, suggesting that, you know, we need to stop this. Psychedelics are dangerous. People are making reckless decisions and all sorts of things. You know, 
kind of here in the epicenter in some ways, or this iconic place, this landscape of um, psychedelics. There's so many different things going on, though. I think psychedelics become a scapegoat for all sorts of fears that are put upon, you know, a, a, a nation in crisis, but a world really in question. We also know that there are all sorts of other things. There are lots of bad drugs in circulation. There are people being dosed without their knowledge. There are um, people not following whatever proper protocols, I mean, outside of a medical context, but people not taking the set and setting into, con into effect. There are people coming into hospital rooms, having taken a cocktail of all sorts of things, speed being a big thing. You know, psychedelics, I think, have been unfairly maligned or lambasted for causing or inciting a variety of reactions that, you know, are part of a way of thinking rather than should be associated with a particular substance. We are not clear from drug reforms. We're not clear. We're not sort of in the clear. We don't have the upper hand now on drug use and drug abuse. And I think knowing more rather than knowing less is certainly what the, the direction we need to steer towards. We have a history in our country going back to the Constitution of the United States and in the founding fathers of having within us a puritanical element, which is against fun, <laughs> against pleasure and against happiness. And there is no question about it. Benjamin Rush, Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Constitution, the father considered of modern psychiatry, was quoted as saying, if angels in heaven could see the amount of alcohol being drunk in the United States, they would turn away their eyes. He was the beginner of the temperance union in this country that eventually became the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which eventually caused prohibition, which was one of the biggest mistakes the United States ever made and which enabled the mafia to become one of the powerful forces on this country. Mm -hmm. And when Harry Anslinger took over as head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, appointed by his uncle, Andrew Mellon, Treasury of the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, when he took over that job, we had a zealous racist in a position of power who used drugs, namely marijuana and opium, as a way to attack people of color and put them in jail. And we are still dealing with that somewhat. 65, 80 years later, we are still jailing people of color at an inordinate rate. And it was Richard Nixon, who we have on record as quoted as saying, I knew I couldn't attack the, the black people directly, and I knew I couldn't attack the hippies directly. But if I could associate both those groups with drugs, I could put it on the news every single night. And that's what he did. And that's why we have so many people of color in jail nowadays for marijuana, which is already legal in some form in 28 states of the union. And these poor people's lives are being ruined on a daily basis. This is what 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 I think of when I hear you, your, your words, moral panic, mm -hmm. a moral panic has be, been created as a way to exercise control and publish and punish rather some people in our society. I think that's absolutely right. And there are a number of excellent American historians who've dug into the war on drugs and looked specifically at how it has cleaved up certain social categories and really associated certain drugs with certain people. And actually that connection is sometimes tenuous. Um, and it also doesn't capture, you know, the real, the, the, the lived experience of the many people who ingest different subject, different uh, psychoactive substances. Paul Gutenberg has talked a little bit about this as well, I'm sure. Um, David Farber has a new book, relatively new book out called The War on Drugs, in which he looks at a variety of different uh, essays that cleave this up into those different parts. And exactly that, they look at, you know, the, the Asian menace, which is associated with opium use and these really racist terms that get, um, they get promoted through, through a focus on drugs that belies the underlying intent here of trying to control, to isolate, segregate, and often institutionalize um, different categories or different populations. And Canada is not uh, better at this. Uh, we say sorry more often, but uh, <laughs> that's just a Canadianism. 
we have a similar kind of echo effect that takes place north of the border for you. And, and, um, and we too have disproportionate numbers of people in institutional spaces. And those are both psychiatric spaces as well as penal spaces or carceral places. Um, and often we see this intersection with different drugs. So I think you're absolutely right. I think the moral panic is, is not about drugs. I think drugs are the Trojan horse here for thinking about a different way of organizing society. And part of that different way of organizing society that's been promulgated is also a war against women. Just as the war on drugs is really not a war on drugs, it's a mm. war on people. There mm. is a war on women that has gone on through these pharmaceuticals as well. Witness the fact that the very first tranquilizers in this country called Milltown mm -hmm. was sold to women to, quote, calm them down. And then we went into the diazepans, Valium mm -hmm. and Ativan and Xanax, mostly sold to women to calm mm -hmm. them down. Why? Because the male belief is that women are too easily excitable. <laughs> women show too many emotions. Women can't be controlled, which is the t which is really the word. So what do we do with them? We give them something to calm them down. Tranquilizers, be more tranquil. What a great word to use for a medicine. And then what we come up with next are these SSRIs to take them out of their depression. So first we knock them down and they walk around like zombies. Then we're gonna take them out of this zombie-like, we'd give them antidepressants, mm -hmm. and which you have to take every day for the rest of your life. And which Robert Whitaker, in his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, if you're not familiar with it, you've got to see it. You know the book? I, I've seen the book, yeah. It's a really great book where this gr eminent journalist points out that the SSRIs are doing as much harm to certain people as they're doing good because mm -hmm. they're based on a flawed premise. Again, getting back to the nature-nurture controversy. The mm -hmm. premise is people with various mental conditions have neurotransmitters that are out of order. So mm -hmm. you give these SSRIs to them in order to regulate. But what it turns out is people with these various psych uh, psychiatric disturbances and mental illnesses do not have brain waves and do not have neurotransmitters which are out of order. So when you give them these medicines, you're creating an out of order in their neurotransmitters. Then mm -hmm. when the people try to get off the SSRIs, they go through withdrawal and they're thinking that their symptoms are coming back, but actually what's going on is they're going through drug withdrawal because yeah. all of a sudden their neurotransmitters are coming back into alignment after the drugs took them out of alignment. So again, I just wanted to reference there that there is also a war against women as, a, as well as a people of color. I, in, in my other life, I, I write about the history of uh, abortion and birth control and forced sterilization. And I, I, I very much see a dovetailing of different ways that individuals and populations and subgroups within populations have been controlled through different policies primarily around drugs and access to drugs and different ways that those uh, conversations have been codified. Um, I wanted to just mention that when, hum when I met Humphrey Osmond, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to meet some of these early pioneers because I started this work so long ago. And uh, you know, when asked what he was most proud of, this is a man who coined the word psychedelic. And I thought, of course, that would be you know, a proudful moment for him, but it wasn't that so much. He was very proud of the way in which he had um, helped to create an organization called Schizophrenics Anonymous. It's a small organization and it may not really register on the historical landscape, but what I think, what it helped me to appreciate was that one of the things that was really important to him and others working in this field was the way that we rethink or challenge the way we think about pathological conditions. And they weren't talking about SSRIs at this moment, but this idea that there are deficits or abnormal or, you know, this kind of um, checks and balances or a set of checklists that we might think of as associated with a DSM. He said we needed to, you know, move past that or never implement that in the first place and think about some of the values and gifts or um, benefits that come from psychotic experiences. And 
he has a loyal following of a number of people who joined Schizophrenics Anonymous. It was an organization that spread throughout North America. And it's an interesting moment because I think here again, it dovetails with a lesser known civil rights inspired movement in the 1960s around mad pride. And the idea that, you know, you can also push past these pathological categories to think about experience and difference and diversity in a variety of ways. It's not the same as looking at the women's movement or civil rights movement in the United States, but this lesser known, but I think still important movement is part of this larger story of trying to put people into these categories and boxes. And we see that trend really intensifying throughout the latter half of the 20th century. It's grafted into insurance claims for health benefits. Uh, we see that in the DSM, the DSM two, three, you know, keep going. Um, we see that sort of subcategorization continuing to, I think, create a currency for allowing this war on drugs to really kind of hang up, um, have some kind of currency to work with. I think that's going to change though. And I think, you know, the work that you're doing and the work that a number of people are now investing in to really sort of step outside of those categories and question whether or not they serve us, you know, whether they serve our economies, our populations, we've been isolated here during a pandemic. I think there's a lot of questioning going on and not just from young people, but I, I hope that this is an opportunity to seek out different kinds of alliances rather than cleaving into our kind of tried um, political allegiances or lack of allegiances, I think there might be an opportunity to think across borders again and recognize uh, the power of thinking differently. You've referenced the DSM several times. Say what you believe the DSM is. The American Psychiatric Association Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you believe is contained in the DSM and what do the letters stand for? The Diagnostics and Statistics Manual. It is in its, I guess, fifth iteration, although there have been some revisions in there as well, but formally it's in its fifth iteration. Um, it is supposed to be the English language categorization or classification system. It has had different kinds of theoretical underpinnings, I would argue, that guide its classification. And one of the things I have my students do when I teach a class on the history of madness is go to the library to look at it. And first of all, we have to figure out where the library is these days. But it, it starts out like this, it gets like this, it gets like this, and it keeps getting bigger. And I think just in a quick visual representation of what that suggests is that our attempts to understand pathological states of psychiatric distress um, have just created more and more and more categories. In some places in the world, they don't use that, often, but increasingly the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual is being used to guide decision-making diagnostic practices and correlating that with treatment practices around the world. It's tagged to, I think, pharmaceutical treatments, it's tagged to research protocols, it's tagged to research funding that's available. Um, and that's on the kind of soft side of it. That's not what you find in the library necessarily. But I think the DSM has become a very powerful indicator, even though I have yet to meet a psychiatrist who says, oh, yes, I follow that to the letter. It continues to be a guide, but it is a powerful symbol, I think, or a representation of a way of thinking about psychiatric disorders. Erica. I've been a doctor of clinical psychology since 1966. That's uh, 34, 54, 56 years. Before mm -hmm. that, I was an MA psychologist. I've been practicing for 62 years. Mm -hmm. I consider the DSM to be a corrupt document. Why do Thank I you. say that? Why do I say that? because we have direct documentary evidence that the pharmaceutical companies have mm. paid money in the millions to people who write the DSM, including high-level Harvard professors, mm. in order to encourage them to add diagnoses to the DSM because they have pharmaceuticals that they're going to sell to the new diagnoses. And the reason that book's getting fatter and fatter, as you describe every year, is in order to allow these pharmaceutical companies to sell more and more pharmaceuticals. So it is an untrustworthy document, and it's part of the corruption that has happened in these United States that has made the public feel unsafe. And that unsafety has led to that lack of safety that the public fear, feels has led to anxiety. It has led to depression 
and it has led to an epidemic, not the only cause I'm not saying when I say has led to, but a major contributing factor to an obesity epidemic that we have in this country, whereby 72 to 74 percent of the United States at the present time are either obese or overweight. Mm -hmm. And it is well documented. I don't have to go into the details here. It is well documented to what extent obesity and overweight contribute to heart cardiovascular disorders, cancer, and mm -hmm. in some cases, and diabetes. So Absolutely. I can I borrow your answer when I teach my class now? <laughs> I was giving you the polite version. <laughs> I don't feel after so many years of diff of dealing with this misguided policy, these misguided policies and what you're calling this moral panic. Mm. I don't feel very calm about it anymore. Mm. I'm feeling like we're running out of time. The 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 client the 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 planet is in crisis. Mm -hmm. We need things that will help us. We should not be denied potential healing benefits or potential medicines just because the people who are out for profit only want to benefit more than they care about humanity. And just to be clear, what you're suggesting is the existential crisis and angst that we feel which I infer is an appropriate reaction to a planet that's on fire um, and that is perhaps in a state of political chaos, that what you don't want is a daily pharmaceutical to make you feel more tranquil. Correct. You don't want to become a zombie when your house is on fire. Precisely. You want to, you want to be alert and aware. And from a certain perspective, there are those of considerable thoughtfulness who are saying at the present time, the house is on fire. And mm -hmm. we don't know for sure whether they're turkey lurkey or not, but it seems more and more likely that they're not. I mean, I interviewed Dr. Sylvia Earle on this program. You know who she is mm -hmm. not too long ago. The one of the world's, if not the world's foremost oceanographer. And Sylvia said without hesitation, we have poisoned. She didn't say we are poisoning. She mm -hmm. said we have poisoned the waters of the world. You know, I think when the thalidomide crisis broke and shook people's confidence, some people were listening to Rachel Carson at the same time, who, of course, in Silent Spring was saying something very, very similar, you know, that we have poisoned the earth. We have poisoned the oceans. We need to wake up. We need to check our whether the green revolution is serving us and who it is serving and think about and Stuart brand would tell us a little bit more about this a little bit later when we look at the earth from that different perspective um, but we need to think about things in global and interconnected ways and not just sort of move and, and facilitate that myopic view that looks at our individual um, progress I suppose and I think this is another one of those moments and the pandemic perhaps is a wake-up call as we recognize the interconnectedness of our actions and in both in environmental terms, but certainly in terms of how we understand or what we do with the anxiety that I think we all feel um, to some degree these days. You used an interesting word there, interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. The most important first thing that I learned from taking LSD in 1966 mm -hmm. was interconnectedness. I had a, the magnificent experience of sensing a connection between myself and all other living beings on the planet. And I recognized that connection in a way that I had not before in my life. Mm. And for my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, that's coming out soon, which in which I interviewed prominent scientists and and uh, and and medical doctors in their 70s, 80s and 190s about their sub rosa use of psychedelics over a 34 year period, 30 or 40 year period. That was one of the things they almost all had in common, which is that what they learned from psychedelics was the interconnectedness of us all mm -hmm. and the interconnectedness of us all and the planet. We are not little animals living on a planet. We are part of the planet. Mm -hmm. It's all one big us. And it's all one big living, breathing organism. 
It's not we and they any more than we and they with people. It's not we and they with nature. It's not we and they with the planet. There's it's it's not surprising that there was a, a kind of some of the early environmentalists credit their psychedelic experiences with giving them a kind of fuel and inspiration for, I shouldn't say fuel, the, the inspiration for uh, an environmental movement. And there are a number of social movements that, you know, not to say that Nixon was right, that, you know, psychedelics caused people to behave in a way that was challenging the authority of the state, but there was a kind of interconnectedness and a theme of interconnectedness that I think pulled together. I, I just wanted to note, though, for your listeners that I noticed that you said that your LSD experience took place in 1966, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you were in California at that time. And that sounds like you took legal LSD because it became illegal in California in 1966 in September. So uh, it sounds like you were on the legal side of things. I was on the legal <laughs> side of things. It was the summer of 1966. Uh, yes, that's correct. And it was legal. And I've also taken LSD illegally hundreds of times since then. And at 83, uh, I don't know what someone's going to do to me for having ingested it, but it would be pretty hard to prove that I actually ingested it other than my words on this program, uh, particularly <laughs> since it gets out of the body pretty quickly. You've written another book in addition to this wonderful book that we're talking about today. By the way, the wonderful book we're talking about is Psychedelic Psychiatry, LSD from Clinic to Campus by Erica Dick. The other book that I have in front of me that she wrote is called The Acid Room, The Psychedelic Trials and Tribulations of Hollywood Hospital. Give mm -hmm. us just a headline and a couple of words about why this book, why you wrote it and what's in it. Well, Hollywood Hospital is, believe it or not, a private hospital that was in British Columbia in Canada not in California, but it had California connections and actually Pacific Northwest connections as both experimenters and researchers and therapists, all of whom were trained by experience, joined up with mostly volunteers or patients, but who were still voluntary, who came to this place either by their own means, they had a private jet or not a private jet, they had a pilot on staff or who came from the Vancouver area to try psychedelics. In some ways, it functions as a bit of a safe room before they were using that language as volunteers opted to come into this space. But it quickly became a bit of a, um, a haven for exploring different patholo pathological conditions as well. One quick example, in at this time, in the beloved DSM, um, homosexuality was considered both a pathological disorder and a crime. People came to this clinic seeking insight into their same-sex attractions. And what happens is not maybe what you expect. I think these guys would agree with you that the, the DSM was not worth the paper it was written on. They did not agree with it. And they didn't have uh, necessarily an outcome that they were trying to produce but or trying to create. But they wanted people to align their views of themselves with something more full of love, that they could love themselves. And so people with same-sex attractions would come to this um, facility and they didn't come out cured of homosexuality as you might read about in other things. Um, they didn't come out like deciding that they wanted to stay in their marriages necessarily, but they did feel that they could appreciate their own lives in different ways. It's a complex and nuanced story of people who come through this facility and take psychedelics, mostly LSD, sometimes masculine, a little bit of psilocybin, and a fairly colorful cast of characters who run the place. It closed in 1974, I should say. In 1974? That's right. What, what happened, do you know? I do, and it's, again, it's a story that isn't what you expect. You think maybe the psychedelic supplies dried up and certainly it was, uh, there was, that was part of it. But really what happened is Canada was rolling out its publicly funded healthcare system. And this private hospital had kind of came to a fork in the road, um, whether it was going to continue to exist in a private space as publicly funded healthcare or Medicare uh, was overwhelming the sort of uh, political economy of healthcare provision at that time. They weren't moving to be aligned with that publicly funded model. Um, and so there was pressure to close it as a private facility, not due to its psychedelic use. In your book, you talk about the fact that in 1959, and I quote, after taking stock of the inventory of experiences collected in Saskatchewan, which was a hotbed of psychedelic research during that period and which drew you there, they created a comprehensive manual on mm -hmm. the use of LSD in therapy. I want to read to you something from that manual that you published in your book 
psychedelic psychiatry. Mm -hmm. The handbook offered a list of the most common responses to LSD. Mm -hmm. This is going back to 1959, where there had been a huge amount of research. One, a feeling of being at one with the universe. Mm -hmm. Two, the experiencing of being, of, of being able to see oneself objectively or a feeling that one has two identities. In other words, getting to witness oneself. Mm. A change in usual concept of self with concomitant change in perceived body. In other words, alternate ways of viewing oneself. Four, changes in perception of space and time. This is so important because we forget that space and time are human-made constructs. These are things that we have developed over time as a way of living their lives. They didn't come with the territory. They're not inherent. There may be other ways to perceive space and time. Five, an enhancement in the sensory fields. I can tell you that I took LSD once in the 1960s and looked at a flower garden and it was so incredibly magnificent. I'd never seen flowers look like this. And I said to myself, I'm going to sit here long enough until these colors with this amount of magnificence are embedded in my consciousness so that when this medicine wears off, I will always be able to see the colors in this way. And I'm here to tell you that that experiment worked and colors have looked that vibrant ever since. Of course, I can't remember how they looked less vibrant, but I can tell you that they have been vibrating ever since. I love that one. Six, changes in thinking and understanding so that the subject feels he or she develops a profound understanding in the field of philosophy or religion. This is what Heinlein talked about when he talked about something beyond thinking and beyond feeling and beyond cognition. He called it grokking. It's mm -hmm. a way of total knowing. And that is what I would call a profound understanding in the field of philosophy or religion. It means it's not as if all of a sudden you've studied a philosophy book or religion, but it's that you understand the world from a philosophical or what you might call religious perspective. Seven, a wider range of emotions with rapid fluctuation. No question, and this is one of the challenging aspects of psychedelics and why it's so important to adhere to the protocols of set setting and having a guide. Because mm -hmm. if things speed up too fast, it's nice to have someone around to remind you to focus and bring everything down a few notches. Eight, an increased sensitivity to the feelings of others. This is the basis of empathy. Mm -hmm. This is what connects us to one another. And this is what allows those in the world who don't have empathy to do harm to other human beings. A lack of empathy. Because when you truly empathize with another person, you cannot hurt the other person any more than you would take an axe and chop off one of your own hands. Nine, psychotic changes. Those include illusions, hallucinations, paranoid delusions of reference, influence, persecution, and grandeur. Thought disorder, perceptual distortion, severe anxiety, and others which have been described in many reports. Yes, those are the unwanted complications of these psychedelics, and they need to be dealt with. And in my experience, they can be dealt with if you have a proper guide so that when they come up, the guide can guide you not to run away from these things, but to go deeper into them so that you grok them, you conquer them, and you master them so that they no longer are harbingers of fear lurking in the back of your consciousness that might come out at any moment and do something awkward or terrible or inconvenient, but rather we come with a sense of mastery that I looked under the rug, 
I found what I was afraid of, and I dealt with it head on with the help of the guide. I'm really pleased that you published this list because it brings together so many of the experiences that I've heard in my interviews, interviewing so many people uh, taking psychedelics. You mentioned that you're now in California and you're doing more research in psychedelics. Tell us a little about what you're up to nowadays. I've never really stopped doing research with psychedelics, but uh, you know, there's, there's always, there are always new rocks to look under. And uh, it's interesting. The conversation has changed a lot since the early two thousands, when sometimes people would speak to me in quiet ways, sometimes at the back of a room after a conference, I would give a paper and people would kind of giggle and talked with me afterwards. But now that's changing a lot. More and more people are willing to donate papers, share their stories of their experiences, explain different coping mechanisms they had either, you know, dealing with some of that material that you just described, some of the material that comes to the surface, or even talking about how people protected their practices for some time. And I think it's a really opportune moment for historians and for thinkers to sort of gather up, um, take advantage of this opportunity to gather up some of that information and capture it, because I suspect that with whichever direction psychedelics go, whether we move towards some state of decriminalization or legalization, or whether we push them further underground, we're going to have to figure out what to do with these stories and what to do with this information. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to be part of that by using my skills as a historian to try to interview widely and collect materials as widely and diversely to see how this story has really changed the way that people interact with one another. And, and the way that we remember this past as well. So I'm really excited to be able to talk with you about this and uh, to share with your listeners some of these ideas and, and you know, happy to uh, take questions or, or if people have feedback to, to reach out to me. Um, I've been collecting trip reports from clinical trials. I've got over a thousand digitized. I've worked with children of some of the early pioneers whose stories have changed themselves. They, they didn't want to talk about their parents initially, felt that this was something their parents may have been involved with that was untoward, offside, mind control, even kind of like Nixon language. And that story is changing. People are willing to open up and rethink that relationship to this past. And also, I hope, seek some kind of wisdoms or lessons that might be gained from that moment instead of seeing it as a caricature uh, that might come through the lens of a war on drugs, but to really sort of open our eyes a little bit more widely to recognize what was actually going on and maybe help us to think about moving forward. Thank you for that. We're coming to the end of our interview. You generously invited people to email you directly. Mm -hmm. Please be so kind as to give out your email address. My email is my name, Erica, E-R-I-K-A dot D-Y-C-K for Dick at U-S-A-S-K. That's University of Saskatchewan, U-S-A-S-K dot C-A. Say the whole thing one more time kindly. E-R-I-K-A dot D-Y-C-K at U-S-A-S-K dot C-A. Thank you so much for joining us on Mind, Body, Health and Politics today, Erica. It's been a real pleasure and educational talking to you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening to today's edition of Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Please join us again next week on Tuesday at nine o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.